There is a world of difference between faith and faithlessness. And that world is heaven. Isaiah chapters 28 through 33 call us to abandon faithlessness in this world so that we might dwell with God in the next. And that is only made possible through faith in Jesus Christ. For as the, the great Puritan minister Thomas Watson once said, other graces make us like Christ. Faith makes us members of Christ. It is only through faith in the one who has gone ahead to prepare a place for his people that we will be ensured of our hope in the world to come. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about this morning from the book of Isaiah. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. You can turn in one of the Bibles provided. If you're using one of those, that's, uh, the passage is found beginning on page 588. 588. And while you're turning there, allow me to set the context of our study this morning. Uh, the book of Isaiah is, is a wonderfully complex and simple book. It is complex given its structure and history, but it is simple given its message. Isaiah's message is summarized in his name. Isaiah simply means God is salvation. We must remember that Isaiah's prophetic ministry was long. He preached to the people of Judah for some 60 years. He saw kingdoms and kings rise and fall. In the first 12 chapters or so in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah addressed the crisis that the people of Judah were facing around the time of 734 B.C. Their immediate neighbor to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, formed an alliance. Together they pestered Judah. But Isaiah's message in the first 12 chapters was this. Do not worry. God is your salvation. He will deliver you from your enemies. These chapters not only promise deliverance from Judah's immediate predicament, but a promise of deliverance for the whole world. God would send His Messiah, the, the one born of a virgin, who would deliver the world from the crisis brought about by sin and death. Isaiah's message is for both the present and the future. Then in chapters 13 through 27, Isaiah went meta. He pulled our gaze out of the present historical circumstance and uh, called us to take a worldwide perspective. In Isaiah chapters 13 through 27, the, the prophet clearly communicated there was no hope to be found in the world because the world was going to face the judgment of God. Even in those dark chapters, chapters, Isaiah buried promises filled with hope for those who believe. Yes, the world is going to face the judgment of God, but God would also save the world. He would save the world through His Messiah and King, who would even swallow up death, Isaiah promised. The world would one day come to worship God and sing God's praises. The message for Judah was that God could be trusted in the midst of worldwide upheaval. In the chapters that we're considering together today, Isaiah, he, he brings us back down to earth. But upheaval and crisis are the focus of these chapters. Isaiah continues to deliver his message to Judah. Salvation is found in God. He can be trusted. In these chapters, in chapters 28 to 33, we've moved on from the crisis that was unfolding 
created by Israel and Syria in 734 BC to a new crisis, to the crisis created by Assyria in 722 BC. The Assyrian Empire had begun to expand and it was knocking on the door of the northern kingdom of Israel. In 722, it actually crushed the northern kingdom and carried its citizens off to exile. This crisis would continue for Judah right up until the point of 701 BC when the Assyrian army surrounded Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, and began banging on the gates. The message of Isaiah in the face of this crisis found in these chapters is simple. Trust in God. He is your salvation. Like the previous sections in Isaiah, these chapters are filled with promises of judgment and promises of salvation. Like previous sections, Isaiah's argument does not proceed in a straight line, but rather, th rather thematically. It, it proceeds in cycles and circles. Isaiah increasingly announces the futility of faithlessness, and he increasingly intensifies the glorious future of the faithful. Isaiah's message to the people of Judah is clear. Abandon faithlessness for faith in the God who is faithful. And if you're looking for a single sentence which summarizes Isaiah's message in these six chapters, this is it. One sentence to summarize six chapters. Abandon faithlessness for faith in the God who is faithful. And we're going to study these chapters under those two themes, the themes that carry out uh, these two chapters. The futility of faithfulness, faithlessness, that's number one, and second, the future of the faithful. And those two points are provided on an insert there in your bulletin, which I hope will help you to follow along. Let's first turn now and consider our first point, the futility of faithlessness. Isaiah first calls the people of Judah to learn the futility of faithlessness from their neighbor in the northern kingdom of Israel. Wouldn't it be better I mean, isn't that our experience? Isn't it better to learn from the mistakes of somebody else than to make them ourselves? Well, in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 1 to 22, the prophet calls the southern kingdom of Judah to learn from Israel's pride, particularly from the pride of their leaders. Uh, read Isaiah chapter 28, just verses 1 to 4 for now. Isaiah 28, verses 1 to 4. Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. The ah that begins verse 1 may also be translated woe. Uh, here we are learning that Ephraim, which is simply another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, is under God's divine displeasure. Israel's flower is fading, and it is fading fast. Assyria is about to march down into their territory and carry them off to exile. Though Assyria is doing it, what verse 2 tells us 
is that Assyria is an instrument in the hand of God. The proud and indulgent will be trampled underfoot. Only a small remnant, only a few, will be left of what once marked this glorious beauty, this kingdom. In Israel, the people of Judah are to see the futility of pride. They are to see that God opposes the proud. The pride leaders of Israel is uh, the pride of the leaders of Israel is especially exposed there in verse seven. Take a look at verse seven. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. Of all people, the priests and the prophets should have been sober and sober-minded. They apparently came under the sway of intoxicating power and intoxicating drink. Their pride and indulgence prohibited them from faithfully discharging their duties to God and to His people. So as verse 11 says, By people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom He has said, This is rest. Give rest to the weary. And this is repose. Yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Israel, you see, in her faithlessness, mocked the living God. The Israelites would not listen to what God had spoken so clearly and plainly. They would not hear and heed God's calls to believe and obey Him. And since they would not listen to the Lord's tongue, the Lord would make them listen to the words of a foreign tongue. Putting the people of Israel under the power of a people with a foreign tongue was an act of judgment and punishment. It would be disorienting, distressing, and discouraging experience for them. It was an act of punishment after all. Interestingly enough, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 21, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 28, 11, and he tells the congregation in Corinth that tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. The people of Israel were faithless, and the Lord promised to punish their faithlessness. Putting the people of Israel under the foreign tongue of the Assyrians was an act of God's judgment. Judah needed to learn from this. So much so that Isaiah pivots and speaks directly to the people of Judah in verses 14 to 22 of chapter 28. The leaders of Israel, they scoffed and they mocked God by their faithlessness. Now look at what Isaiah says of the leaders in Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. Isaiah 28 verse 14. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, you who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol. We have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us. For we have made lies our refuge. And in falsehood, we have taken shelter. Since Jerusalem was the capital city of Judah, in some ways it represented the nation as a whole. And and notice this, just as the leaders of Israel led the people astray, so the leaders of Jerusalem were leading the people astray. Their lack of faith in God, their faithlessness, led them to make a covenant with death. They were friends with the world. 
Now, the, the, the leaders of, of Jerusalem didn't think of it as a covenant with death, but an alliance, a, a covenant with anyone other than God will inevitably bring destruction and death. Friendship with the world, as James said, is enmity with God. Jerusalem and Judah can say, you know, terror is not going to come to us. They can say that until they're blue in the face. But it will not stop the terror that is coming to them. It did not stop the terror that came to Israel. Another act of judgment against unbelief and faithlessness is that God would lay in Zion a precious cornerstone. You see that in verse 16. Those with eyes of faith would see God's work and believe. But those who persist in the futility of faithlessness will be judged by this. In his letter to the Romans, Paul, particularly in Romans chapter 9, Paul picks up this verse, verse 16, and he declares that Jesus Christ was the final cornerstone. Friends, brothers and sisters, let us not stumble over him and so be judged by him. Let us believe in him and so find that our faith will not be put to shame on the day of judgment. I think that it's important that we learn something from Isaiah's preaching here. We need to remember that Isaiah is addressing the southern kingdom of Judah, but he is using the sins of their neighbor, the northern kingdom, as a foil for the sins of the southern kingdom. Judah has the same problem as Israel. Friends, brothers and sisters, let us guard ourselves against hypocrisy. When the sins of another person are identified or confessed, let us be quick to confess our own sins. In our flesh, we are tempted to say, I thank God that I'm not like that man. In reality, we are precisely like that man. When the sins of others are on display, we need to confess our own sins. We need to make confession our way. When the sins of others are, are set on display, let us go to Christ and let us say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In chapter 28, Isaiah has warned the people of Judah about the futility of faithlessness, particularly concerning the damage that faithless leaders can bring upon a nation. In chapter 29, the Lord announces that he is going to bring judgment upon Jerusalem. The Lord promises through Isaiah that his beloved city of Jerusalem will be besieged. And in fact, this is what would take place in 701 BC when Sennacherib surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Like chapter 28, chapter 29, you'll notice, begins with an ah, begins with a woe oracle, a divine judgment oracle. Israel will be judged and brought low. You see that there in verse 4, when their enemy is brought to the gate. The gates of Jerusalem will be as far as Sennacherib and his army come. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 8 tells us that he will not enter the city of Jerusalem. God will stop him. And how will the people of God respond to this deliverance? They will be astonished, as verse 9 makes clear. But will this astonishment lead to faith or faithlessness? Think about Jesus' miracles. What happened when he performed a miracle? Did it lead to faith or a rejection of him? It can lead to faith or faithlessness. What will their astonishment lead to? Sadly, it will lead to faithlessness. Because their hearts were nowhere near the Lord. Take a look at verse 13 of Isaiah 29. And the Lord said, because this people draw near 
with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Here we we see the futility of faithlessness exemplified by empty worship. Faithlessness was the whole reason God was disciplining and punishing His people. It's the whole reason He was bringing this trouble to Judah. He was trying to lead them and draw them back to faith in Him. And yet, the people of Judah just keep going through the motions. They dutifully turn up to church. They read the creed. They sing the songs. Words of love are on their lips. But their hearts are in love with someone or something other than the Lord. They are so in love with with everything else but God that they cannot perceive the work that He is doing in their midst. Is your worship empty? That's actually the wrong question. The right question is this, is your heart empty? The problem with our worship is not in the means that God gives, but in our hearts. God does not say that their sacrifices were inadequate or improper. He says that their hearts are far from Him. That is the problem. The problem is not with our hands, whether we clap them or raise them or keep them in our pockets. All are welcome here, by the way. The problem is not with our hands. The problem is with our hearts. The problem is not in the means that God has given to His people for worship. The problem is in those who make use of those means. The question we need to ask ourselves is this, what do we love? What is it that is competing for our love for God? What is competing for the love that God is owed? What is it that so fills our view that blinds us to Him and how He is working? Whatever it is, we need to know It is not worthy of our love because it cannot save us. It cannot deliver us. Only He can. And that is why God and God alone is worthy of our faith, our hope, and our love. Chapter 28 revealed the futility of trusting in faithless leaders. Chapter 29 revealed the futility of faithless worship. It revealed empty hearts. Chapter 30 then reveals the futility of faithlessness by placing one's faith in a foreign nation. In the coming Assyrian crisis, the people of Judah would be tempted to trust in the strength of Egypt. Egypt, think about that. Can you imagine? Of all nations to trust in, Judah is tempted to trust in the nation that once enslaved them. Isaiah warns them of the futility of trusting in Egypt. Take a look at chapter 30. Begin reading there in verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation, For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. Isaiah couldn't be clearer 
about what would happen to the people of Judah should they put their hope in Pharaoh and of Egypt instead of God. This is not of God. God will not bless it. An alliance that is not of His Spirit. They didn't ask of God. Did you notice that? This is not of of my will. Do not add sin to sin. The only thing that will come of this is shame and humiliation. Isaiah drives that point home some seven times in these five verses. Isaiah is beyond clear in verse 7. You'll notice when he says, Egypt's help is worthless and empty. And here's what's really disconcerting about the present state of the people of Judah. They don't want to hear this message. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 30 verse 9. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us of of smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. We don't want to hear the uncomfortable truth. Tell us what we want to hear. This is still a danger for the church today. Doesn't the Apostle Paul warn us of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3? Paul writes, For there, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As hard as the truth is to hear, We need to hear it, and we need to keep hearing it, for judgment comes to those who refuse to hear it. We are constantly in danger of hearing what we want to hear and seeing what we want to see. Who and what are you allowing to shape you? What teaching are you taking in? Brothers and sisters, we need to be good Bereans. We need to be searching the Scriptures To see whether or not these things are so. Children, youth, young adults. You should be aware that one of the temptations of youthfulness is to refuse to hear what your parents and your your elders have to say. And parents, let's be sure that we're telling our kids what they need to hear. Not simply what we want them to hear. That's also a temptation for preachers. As a preacher, I am in danger of saying what I want you to hear instead of what God wants you to hear. I am in danger of getting on my hobby horses and riding them. And it is my hope that in submitting myself to the practice of expositional preaching, of preaching through the whole Bible, preaching book by book, allowing the point of the passage to be the point of the sermon, It's my hope that in pursuing this, that God would guard me from my hobby horses and give us what we need to hear. So members of this church, please pray that the Lord would humble me as I prepare sermons. Pray that I would hear what he is clearly saying in his word and pray that I would faithfully deliver it to our congregation. Pray that I would always make the point of the passage, the point of the sermon. The point of Isaiah's sermon, I think, in chapter 30 is pretty clear. I'm not going to tell you what you want to hear. I'm not going to tell you that Egypt can save you. They can't. 
Egypt's help is worthless and empty, Isaiah says. And he keeps beating this drum concerning the futility of trusting in worldly strength all the way through verse 17. And then he starts banging the drum again in chapter 31. So take a look at the beginning of chapter 31. Begin reading there in verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble and he who is helped will fall and they will perish, all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Isaiah, he, he brings out a series of contrasts there for the people of Judah. Verse 1 tells, it tells us, will you trust in horses and chariots? Or will you trust in the created things or your creator? Verse 2, will you trust in those who cannot bring their words to pass? Or in the God who does bring all of his words to pass? Verse 3, will you trust in man or in God? The question is relevant for us today too, isn't it? Like Judah, we're tempted to find our hope in people and things instead of in the Lord. We could come up perhaps with a list of ways in which we're tempted to trust in Egypt to make friendship with the world. We could trust in political candidates or military strength. We could trust in bank accounts or retirement accounts. We could trust in promotions and career paths. We could trust in education or knowledge. The list could go on and on. And while none of those things are sinful in and of themselves, they weren't made for our trust. They weren't made to receive our faith and to fulfill our hopes. They will inevitably disappoint. And, and that is why the main point of application, I think that we should be taking away from, from these chapters, 30 and 31, from this text, Shame and disappointment and defeat will inevitably follow trusting in anything or anyone other than God. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will not be put to shame. Let's turn now and consider the second major thing, theme that we see in these chapters. The hope of a future for the faithful. As is so often the case in Scripture, God's mercy toward His people comes in the context of judgment. While the faithless meet their end in their punishment, the faithful have a future in glory. And as we consider the future of the faithful, turn back to Isaiah chapter 28. We're going to go back to the beginning and work through it again. And the first thing we see here in chapter 28 is that there is actually a future for the faithful. There is a future for the faithful. The first portion of Isaiah 28, you remember, is about the people of the northern kingdom of Israel. If you recall, you take a look there at verse 5, you see that, that there's a, a remnant 
Even among the northern kingdom, a remnant of God's people, a small few, will be preserved. God will not totally wipe out His people in either Israel or Judah, for He will not wipe out His promises to send them a Messiah and King. See, God's activity in the world is designed actually to bring about His purpose and plan. God's activity in the world is designed to bring about His purpose and plan. His activity even now is designed for that end. And that's what the imagery of Isaiah chapter 28 verses 23 through 29 communicates. So read Isaiah chapter 28 verses 23 to 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground when he has leveled its surface? Does he not scatter dill and sow cumin and put in wheat in rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed, his God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cart wheeled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does not does one crush grain for bread? No. Does he not thresh it forever when he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses? He does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. What we're given here in these verses is something of a, a parable. It's, it's agricultural imagery. It's a parable of a farmer, and Isaiah asks a series of rhetorical questions along the way. He's asking his questions, his readers' questions. He's asking us, Do, you know, doesn't a farmer, doesn't he know how to get what he wants out of the ground? Yes. Doesn't he, he beat it and break up the soil so that it will give up its goods? Well, yes. You have to harrow the ground so that you can harvest it. And Isaiah asks, you know, does he beat it relentlessly? But no. And so verse 29 forms the conclusion. So it is with God. I, I wonder if you see how Isaiah is actually preaching mercy and a future here. In the context of all this judgment and excoriation for faithlessness, we could be tempted to think that God is just going to wipe out His people. But He's not. They have a future. This crisis is coming. So that God can bring His purposes out of it. He is pruning His vineyard, cutting away dead branches, so that His vine will yield its proper fruit in due time. And this is what God is doing in His wisdom. He is bringing His people through these crises, so that in the fullness of time, He can bring the Savior to them. Read Isaiah chapter 29, verses 17 through 19. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field. And the fruitful field should be regarded as a forest. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. And out of their gloom, the darkness, uh, darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. And the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. You see... The Lord is looking to bring fruitfulness out of His people. In that day, the, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. 
When did the deaf hear? When did the blind see? When Jesus healed them. Don't the references to the meek and the poor remind you of what Jesus preached in the Beatitudes? All of this history has to unfold so that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ might come. All of this has to unfold so that God's people might be transformed from rebellious to redeemed. Stay there in chapter 29. Take a look at verse 22. Therefore, thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall be no more ashamed. No more shall his face grow pale. For when he sees his children, the work of his hands in the midst, he will sanctify them. Sancti- he will sanctify, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in the Spirit will come to understanding. And those who murmur will accept instruction. Isaiah is reminding us here of the promises that God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. And he's calling us to look forward to Jesus Christ. Remember, God is creating a people for Himself and for His glory. It is Jesus who deals with our fallenness and shame. It is Christ in us who encourages us to sanctify God, to honor God and stand in awe of Him. We were those who were going astray, but the Lord brings us to understanding. We are those who murmur and complain, but we are also those who will be brought to see our need For humility under God's corrective hand. In Isaiah chapter 30, Isaiah continues to to intermingle God's present work with his purposes for the future. Especially in verses 18 to 38, we're given God's larger perspective. God, he, he has to deal with the faithlessness of his people so that he might give them a future. They have abandoned him for faith in Egypt. But where they were faithless, he remains faithful. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say, be gone. And he will give the rain for seed with which you sow the ground and bread and produce of the ground which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures and the oxen and the, the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain, on every high hill, there will be brooks running with water. In the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. And the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. And the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of His people and heals the wounds of inflicted by His blows. See, at the right time, 
God shows grace and mercy to his people. So wait for him. Trust in him. Depend upon him in this season that he is giving you adversity. Verse 18. There is coming a day when the tears of affliction will be no more. And the people of God will dwell with their God. That day must be the last and great day pictured in Revelation 21. God tenderly teaches his children to walk in his ways. When they begin to step off the path, he corrects them by his word and spirit, saying, this is the way, walk in it. And notice what verse 21 says. It says that God's people will hear. That was the problem earlier in this chapter. Verse 9, we're told that they were unwilling to hear. But now they hear. God's people not only hear, but they also heed His word. They, they cast away their idols. They're done trusting in other things, in other gods. They repent of their sins. They turn away from them. And verses 23 to 26 sound an awful lot like the glories of Eden restored. Or better yet, surpassed. The faithlessness of God's people is finally overcome by the faithfulness of God. And the future of the faithful, it's also marked by the reign of the king and of the spirit. Turn to chapter 32, Isaiah chapter 32. Take a look at verse 1. 32 verse 1. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Here we're reminded of the promises of a king from Isaiah chapters 7 and 9 and 11. Israel and Judah had some good kings, but let's be honest, they also had some pretty bad kings. Even their best kings practiced unrighteousness. David was an adulterer. And Hezekiah, who we'll learn about a little later in the book of Isaiah, Hezekiah, he opened his treasury and his heart to Babylon. This king mentioned in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 1, however, will reign in righteousness because he is righteous. And this king has a transformative effect on society. Notice under his reign, righteousness flows from his rule, from princes down to paupers. Under his reign, evil is no longer called good. And good is no longer called evil. As we see in verses 5 through 8. All is set right in the world. This day still lies in the future for Isaiah. Repentance is still needed. And much of the second half of chapter 32 communicates that. Complacency needs to be replaced with confession of sin and contrition. And yet, as verse 15 makes clear, the outpouring of the Spirit is coming. When the king reigns and the spirit is poured out, the new creation has dawned. Read Isaiah chapter 32, verse 15. Verse 15. Until the spirit is poured out from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest, then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. This is the day that Isaiah looked forward to. Christ our King is reigning. 
We know this from His ascension to the right hand of God the Father. The Spirit of Christ has been and is being poured out. We know that from Acts chapter 2 and His work in our hearts. Yet the fullness of this day has not yet come. We still wait for the day in which we will abide in a completely peaceful habitation and in quiet resting places. We still look forward to the full glory of the new heavens and the new earth. We live in a world of trouble while we trust God for the future that He has promised. Chapter 33 is full of the tension that we live in and full of the hope that we live for. In this chapter, in chapter 33, we learn that one day the enemies that crowd and cloud the vision of the people of God will be removed and we will behold our King in His glorious beauty. Notice how chapter 33 opens. Isaiah chapter 33, verses 1 and 2. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed, When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And when you have finished the tray, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. See, the threat of Assyria is clearly in Isaiah's view here. It's in Judah's field of vision. It's a, it's a frightful sight. Assyria is mighty and strong. They are traitors. They're destroyers. They're betrayers. And what do God's people do when they are afraid? They pray. Did you notice that? They pray for God's grace. They pray for the endurance needed to wait upon the Lord and His timing. They pray for the strength that comes from His arm each and every day. They pray for Him to save them, to deliver them. This expression of fear and struggle for faith continue to cycle through until we reach verse 17. One day, the toil and trouble will give way. And one day, faith will give way to sight. Begin reading in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 17. Isaiah chapter 33, verse 17. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand, behold, Zion, the city of our appointed feasts, your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in majesty will be for us a place of broad rivers and streams, where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ships can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Your cords hang loose. They cannot hold the mast firm in its place. 
or keep the sails spread out. They pray and pray and spoil and abundance will be divided. Even the lame will take the prey. And no inhabitant will say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. Here, we are given a majestic picture of the future for the faithful. We will behold the King in His beauty. The Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that one day we will see Him as He is. On that day we will muse on the terror, verse 18. We will muse on the terror. On the day that we see Him, all of our fears will be gone. And we'll look back and say, why was I afraid? Where is that threatening force now? Christian, whatever you are afraid of has an end. In glory, it can threaten you no more. Whatever you are afraid of cannot steal from you what God has promised to give you in Jesus Christ. You have coming to you an untroubled habitation in glory. Verse 20. Why? Because the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. And I say he is just piling up description upon description. He's saying the Lord, he is our everything. He will save us. He is our salvation. He will forgive us our iniquity, transgression, and sin. He will heal us of our diseases and give us the spoil and plunder of the new heavens and the new earth. So let us abandon our faithlessness for faith in the God who is faithful. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what you need to know. Isaiah chapter 33 verses 17 through 24 describes the future for those who turn away from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. And this future is only for them. There are only two ways to respond to the message of Isaiah chapters 28 through 33. Through belief or unbelief. Through faith in Jesus Christ or through rejecting Jesus Christ. And deep down you know that these chapters give us a real picture of what we experience every day in the world. Every day in this world we see pride. And we see drunkenness. We see a refusal to hear God's word. And attempts to find refuge and safety in anything and anyone other than God. We see all of this in the world because like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we have sinned and rebelled against God. We have decided to live our own way. And our own way has led to ruin. Because of our refusal to trust God and to take Him at His word, we all deserve to be punished forever for our faithlessness. But in love, God was faithful to His promises. God promised the first sinners, the first sinners in this world, that He would send a Savior, that He would send a King. Isaiah is echoing and repeating that promise in these chapters. And this is the good news of the Bible, that the King has come. The Lord Jesus Christ came and He came to save us. He came to give us a hope and a future. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. And He lived the life of perfect faithfulness unto God the Father. He was sinless. But for our sin and faithlessness, He died upon the cross. And in His death, 
He took the punishment that was due to the sins of all of those who'd ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised the Lord Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And Jesus now calls all of us to turn from our faithlessness and place our faith in Him. Jesus calls us to hope for that day, to long for that day in which we will see the King in His beauty. Friend, I want to urge you to believe this good news about Jesus. I want to urge you to abandon your faithlessness for faith in the God who is faithful. And if you want to know more about what it means for you and how you can follow the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, living in hope for the future glory that Isaiah has portrayed here in poetic beauty, then please do find me at the door after the service or speak with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with today. There is nothing more important you can think about today than this good news. We should conclude. The message of Isaiah chapters 28 through 33 was delivered to a fearful people in the midst of national and international turmoil. The message was simple. Abandon faithlessness for faith in the God who is faithful. I don't know about you, but, but this message strikes me that this message is no less appropriate for the people of God today. What are your fears? What tempts you to be faithless? What tempts you to place your faith in something or someone whose help, in reality, is really worthless? These chapters teach us that our fears really will fade when we behold the King in His beauty. The future of the faithful is guaranteed by the God who is faithful. If we will not be afraid on the last day, then why should we be afraid on this day? Let us, by God's grace, abandon our fears and faithlessness for unwavering faith in our Savior and King. Let's pray together.